You don't have to look hard to find headlines for that reference. Obesity is an epidemic these days. For generations, it's been pretty much dogma, right? That larger bodies are bad for your health. And frankly, in medical school, I feel like it's beat into our heads that the larger you are, the worse your health is going to be. And we need to fix that. It's also been widely assumed that if you are obese, it's because you've made bad health decisions and therefore you are to blame. So for many of us, including doctors, you only get obese if you eat too much, don't exercise. So if someone is obese, it's because they aren't doing the right things. We just need to counsel them to do the right things and they will choose to be healthy and make sure to bring it up at every appointment so they don't forget. I remember that being hammered home at medical school, you know, if you, if you don't bring it up at every appointment, there's no way they're going to remember that they're obese and fat. But what if everything that we've been told is wrong? I was encountered by this relatively recently. Julie, were you smacked yeah. in the face by this? I was smacked in the face. Um, also, because you turned me on to maintenance phase, uh, the podcast, the podcast that we strive to be at least 1% like, um, <laughs> hopefully, but yeah, I, I I echo your sentiments, Jeremy. Um, you know what's funny is like even just in this very small journey of learning about this and about fat stigma and weight stigma and what we're going to talk about today, literally even just hearing you say the words obese and obesity is like ew, stop it, ew, yeah. you're doing it wrong, gross, gross, gross. You're saying bad words, Ugh, you know. So that is an awesome introduction. Also, I would just like to comment on Julie's sexy cold voice. That is just fantastic. Uh, It's going to make for an amazing episode. Um, Enjoy. Yeah. So some questions. Is it, is it possible that higher BMIs do not actually mean you're unhealthy or what if BMI is actually an awful measure of health and we shouldn't even be using it at all? And the glaring question is, is obesity really a disease? Is it something that we should be treating? Does it need treatment? So today we're going to explore these questions and more with an expert who brings over 20 years of experience researching weight and healthcare. I want to preface kind of like we did in the Ozempic uh, episode that this is maybe a hard conversation for some. It may be a hard conversation because it may challenge some of the things that you've been uh, taught in the past. It may bring up some concepts that have been ingrained in our society for more or less forever. It also may be something that you've personally dealt with. And in that case, it may be slightly triggering. But ultimately, I think Julie and I have really emphasized that this is an important conversation. We have been trying to do our own learning in this area. And honestly, we're both super pumped to to learn from our expert today. So we're going to highlight areas in which we can grow to provide more inclusive care, which is really the goal of the podcast in general for every person and everybody. And so we're all going to try to figure out how we can better measure healthcare. Ready? Rock on. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name is Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right. So welcome back. Today, we're excited to welcome Reagan Chastain to the podcast. Reagan is a speaker, writer, researcher, board-certified patient advocate, multi-certified health and fitness professional, and thought leader in weight science, weight stigma, and healthcare. Utilizing her background in research methods and statistics, Reagan has brought her signature mix of humor and hard facts to healthcare, corporate, conference, and college audiences from Kaiser Permanente and the Diabetes Education Specialist National Conference to Amazon and Google to Dartmouth, Caltech, and CanFitPro. It sounds like she has a lot of frequent flyer miles. <laughs> uh, author of the Weight and Healthcare Newsletter, co-author of the H 
AES Health Sheets and editor of the anthology The Politics of Size, Reagan is frequently featured as an expert in print, radio, television, and documentary film. In her free time, Reagan is a triathlete and marathoner who holds the Guinness World Record for Heaviest Woman to Complete a Marathon. Baller. She lives in an L.A. with her fiancé, Julianne, and their adorable dog, and I'm jacked. I'm ready to have it. Another another guest that's too cool to be on our show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no way. No we're, way, we're but the all... dog is adorable. That part is absolutely <laughs> true. So the so the rest is all bullshit, but that the adorable dog <laughs> is fantastic. the adorable dog. You can count on that. Take that to the bank. That dog is cute. Yeah. Reagan, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. So I think many of our listeners will find the title of this episode perplexing. We're titling this Is Obesity a Disease? We have been told for years that obesity is bad and that there's an epidemic of obesity leading to more disease. Like there are certain non-debatable truths in medicine. We are taught these things. Smoking's bad for you. I bet the majority of the public and doctors for that matter would say obesity is obviously a disease that needs treatment and people need to lose weight. So I want to start really, really broad here. Let's start with the concept of obesity. What is obesity? So obesity is defined based on body mass index categories right now. So obesity is a ratio of weight and height. If your weight in pounds times 703 divided by by your height in inches squared is 30 or more, you are quote unquote obese. Um, There are, it's a deep problematic measurement on a lot of uh, axes, but primarily started to start with, it's not a health measurement at all. It's literally just a high weight ratio. Where did it come from? Why do we even use it? So the pathologization of higher weight bodies actually is rooted in an inextricable from racism and anti-blackness. And I absolutely recommend reading the work of Sabrina Strings, Deshaun Harrison, Joy Cox, uh, Shelby Gordon, and others to really understand the ways that this is rooted in white supremacy and it continues to this day to disproportionately impact those communities. Uh, the, The measurement itself comes from the work of a statistician named Ketele, who in the 1800s was trying to figure out the proportions of what he considered the quote unquote ideal man. And in his own words, anything that differed from those proportions would be, quote, monstrous and, quote, deformed. Uh, extra problematically, he was pretty sure that the ideal man was a cisgender European white dude because those are the only people he included in his studies. Mm-hmm. And so it codifies racism into the measurement from the very beginning. And then it was pulled by Ansel Keys and others as a use for like quickly measuring people and was predominantly used by the insurance industry because it was a quick, cheap way to stratify risk. And pre-Obamacare, before the Affordable Care Act, high BMI was allowed to be considered a pre-existing condition for which coverage could be denied. So personally, I couldn't access insurance for 14 years as a self-employed person because my existence was allowed to be considered a pre-existing condition that insurance companies simply did not have to cover. So that's how it really got into mainstream. And then it was further codified by the enmeshment of the diet industry, which Mm -hmm. has really been playing a long game with this idea of, quote, obesity as a, quote, disease, as a way to create a market for products. I am dumbstruck with all that information. I'm very excited about this conversation. And I, and that that was friggin' poetry, Reagan. <clears throat> so thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And I'll just to set the stage real quick, there's a a story. So we all know sort of the story of Galileo, right? Who developed mm-hmm. a telescope, figured out the earth revolved around the sun, and they called him a heretic, put him under house arrest, made him recant. Terrible. The part of that story that's most interesting to me is that his contemporaries refused to look through the telescope. So it wasn't that they were like, 
this telescope is poorly made or, hey, dude, your math is off. They simply wouldn't look. And I find I've been teaching about this to varied audiences, including healthcare practitioners, general audiences, et cetera, since 2009. And one of the things I find is people who simply won't look through the telescope. So it's not like they're like, look, I looked at your research and I think it's bunk or I don't think it's, they simply refuse to imagine that they could be trapped in a paradigm that isn't actually um, research-based ethical evidence-based work. And so the, you know, this is, I just hugely appreciate the opportunity to give folks a chance to look through the telescope and really grapple with this a little bit. That's, that's a great story. And I will probably fodder for my outro at the end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. It's a good sequitur to kind of talk about, like, I assume one of the biggest things, and, and I'll use my own anecdote here that, you know, when we're in medical school, we're taught risk factors and we're taught things that can put people into unhealthy situations and smoking and obesity are in almost every category. And so I think for anybody who's a clinician listening, but frankly, anybody who is in healthcare, they think to yourself, like, how is it possible that that shows up everywhere, but obesity is not a problem. So let's just start there and go with it. All right. So for my research nerds out there, correlation is not causation will be something you've heard a lot. Uh, they teach it to you the first day of research methods class. My particular teacher made us repeat it every single day of research <laughs> methods class. It's really important that just because two things happen at the same time, you absolutely can't conclude that one causes the other. This gets tricky in medical research because we use correlation all the time. Often a causal mechanism isn't discoverable. Where this falls down for the idea of quote unquote obesity is that it's not responsible to assume causation without exploring what are called confounding variables. Mm -hmm. So, all right, we've got this relationship. Let's say higher weight people do have a higher incidence of these health issues. So the next question we absolutely must ask is what else could cause this? right? What else could mediate this relationship? And with the case of higher weight and health, there are three really pretty well-researched options, which are weight stigma, weight cycling, or yo-yo dieting, which is by far the most common outcome of any weight loss attempt, and then unequal access to healthcare. And so most studies, in fact, almost every study that tries to correlate being higher weight with a higher disease risk or all-cause mortality, um, doesn't even discuss, let alone control for these confounding variables. And these are things that higher weight people are exposed to earlier and more often, the more that we focus on manipulation of body size, on labeling being higher weight as a negative thing, like that all exacerbates weight stigma and weight cycling and healthcare inequalities. So from my perspective, to say it's a risk factor is one thing, um, but you have to say, is it the actual condition of living in a higher weight body? Is it, or is it all the things that people who live in higher weight bodies are exposed to that's yeah. actually creating the higher incidence of disease risk or the higher uh, relative risk of all-cause mortality, et cetera? And that's a much more complicated discussion to have. And it's way easier to say, well, I don't know, they're just fat and they're fat because they made bad choices. What do you think about the concept of everybody talking about an obesity epidemic? Like, give me your thoughts on that. I don't think it works based on the definition of an epidemic. Simply people existing while fat does not constitute an <laughs> epidemic. Right. That's not how that works. Um, and one thing I want to point out is that we have about a century of data that shows that about 95% of people who attempt intentional weight loss regain the weight. And then studies that show that up to 66% of those people regain more than they lost. Mm -hmm. 
So we are prescribing earlier, more often, and more aggressively in intervention that has the opposite of the intended effect up to 66% of the time. Mm-hmm. An intervention that causes weight gain up to 66% of the time. And then we're hand wringing that people are fatter than when we started this. That does not make sense. Yeah. Right. We can't be like, how, how is it possible? You know, if we want to look at the, the trend of dieting with the trend of people being heavier, then those things are linearly related beyond which people are a lot of different sizes for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the pathologization of size. And so when we talk about an, you know, an obesity epidemic, first of all, that creates so much weight stigma, mm-hmm. right? That you should look at anybody and by sort of eyeing them, you can tell that they're, you know, taking your healthcare dollars and all of these things. Mm-hmm. And it also starts us down a bad road. Anytime you take a group of people and you try to figure out how much they cost to figure out if eradicating them would make things cheaper, you have gone down a bad road yeah. already, you know, and it creates this idea to your point about healthcare inequality, where there's this belief that, well, if fat people can get thin, then if inequality is due to fatness, then that inequality is acceptable, right? Because people could just get thin to access ethical evidence-based medicine and unless and until they do, they don't deserve it. Yeah. And then all of the negative outcomes of that get blamed on fat bodies and not on the inequality. So it creates this cycle, right? Where we're creating weight stigma, weight cycling and healthcare inequalities. We're blaming the negative outcomes of that on fat bodies and saying, see, being fat is associated with all these negative things. And then we're using that to justify more weight stigma and weight cycling and healthcare inequalities. And all of that is under the guise of this obesity epidemic languaging. Whenever there's obesity epidemic languaging, I always feel like there's that associated graph that shows that the amount of obese people in, in uh, by definition with BMI over the past however many decades has gone statistically up. So let's just talk about that graph for a second and understand the concept of like, why does that, first of all, not matter? And why do we keep seeing it? Yeah, so there's a lot of issues with that graph. First of all, in 1998, a committee of people, most of whom um, either owned weight loss clinics and or were taking money or employed by commercial weight loss companies and headed by um, a big wig from Weight Watchers, uh, convinced the NIH to change what was considered a normal weight based on BMI. And so they literally made about 29 million people quote overweight overnight. Mm-hmm. And then the diet industry had all this press that came out the next day that was like millions of people don't know they're overweight. And it was like, well, they weren't yesterday. So maybe calm down. Right. So there's been all of this um, manipulation of the idea of what is overweight and obese of, you know, how concerning it is and dividing it into classes and dividing it into all of these things, changing the names of it. I was for a while, I'm at the top class. I'm what's considered quote unquote class three obese. And for a while we were super obese, which I was excited about because I thought it might come with like a secret decoder ring and a cape of some kind. Um, (laughs) Now we're severely obese, which is less cool. Took Um, away your superpower. Yeah. My my decoder ring. Um, But we're not, we're not calling us morbidly obese anymore. I guess it's better, Uh, but it's been this thing. And so much of that has been driven by the diet industry. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you show this graph of, oh my gosh, people are bigger than they used to be. And there's a lot of issues with the calculation that is way more than we can get into in a podcast. But there's also the fact that people are also taller, that we're seeing a trend of lab animals and animals in the wild and people and everybody kind of getting bigger. And so that like may have to do with and in some extent, because there's still obviously a massive amount of hunger and food insecurity, but solving hunger, it may have to do with a lot of things we don't know. Mm-hmm. But 
pathologizing that and then saying that the right thing to do is to try to wedge everybody into the same height weight ratio has been spectacularly unsuccessful and incredibly harmful to a lot of people. There's been a lot of language early on in this podcast. We've used the word obese. I think there's been the reference to the word fat. There may have been another couple of references there. I, I think I want to just really spend a quick moment talking about language in general, about how the word obesity is generally speaking, not terribly acceptable and maybe kind of walk us through some of the language that that is being used in this area. Sure. So I'll start with fat, which is my preferred term to describe myself. It's a reclaiming term for me. It's kind of a way I tell my bullies they can't have my lunch money anymore. <laughs> it also accurately describes my body without pathologizing or medicalizing it mm -hmm. in the way that terms like obese and overweight do. Mm -hmm. And these were terms that were literally made up to pathologize bodies based on size rather than shared symptomology or cardiometabolic profile. And so overweight is also just overtly stigmatizing, right? It says mm -hmm. there's a correct weight and you're not it. Obese actually comes from a Latin root that means to eat until fat, like to mm -hmm. eat oneself fat. And so a lot more stereotype than science there. Yeah. And so you can start to see like where this came from. And again, this all goes back to anti-blackness and racism and white supremacy and that, that cannot be um, ignored. So there's that piece of it. So obese and overweight are terms that, you know, they literally just created to pathologize some bodies. We're hearing now more about quote unquote person first language, mm -hmm. that it's somehow less stigmatizing to say person with obesity or person with overweight, which the second one kills me like that Ugh. phobia gives us enough problems. Let's not make us grammatically problematic <laughs> as well. Um, but it's important to know this is absolutely not coming from weight neutral health community. It's not coming from fat activism community. This is coming from the diet industry. Mm -hmm. And it's been part of a long push of theirs to have the idea of being higher weight be considered a chronic lifelong health condition, um, which we can get into. But at any rate, the, first of all, this comes from disability community where it is quite controversial. Yeah. And again, highly recommend reading authors from that community to understand that. But instead, the diet industry sort of lifted a whole cloth with none of the nuance involved and mm -hmm. applied it to fat people. That so somehow it's better to say the person with obesity got on the bus. Um, and the problem is it actually becomes more stigmatizing because we don't talk about bodies that way in any other, nobody's like, oh, the, the person with thinness, you know, got on the train. Yeah. Um, in my life, nobody's ever said, oh my gosh, don't call yourself brunette. You're a person with brown hair. Right. So we only are using that language because we're suggesting like your body is so terrible that we can't describe it openly. We have to find like a semantic workaround. Yeah. And it, again, empowers people who are profiting from the attempted eradication of fat people. Uh, so person-first language, I don't use at all. There are more neutral terms. So fat isn't for everybody. There are people who could be you know, described as that who don't choose to align with the term, which is completely valid. So I also will use higher weight, larger mm -hmm. bodies, higher weight of the weight spectrum, basically any term that accurately describes these bodies without pathologizing or medicalizing them. And that wasn't used as a taunt that's going to be triggering to somebody like fat would be, yeah. you know, are terms that we can use that are better than obese or person with obesity. Yeah, that, that was extremely helpful. And every, <laughs> that's the second time that you've taught me that, <laughs> that the, the, because I, I do think that our language is very, very important. And that's something that we take, um, very seriously on this show. And, you know, I always want to be on the right side of history and making sure that I'm not making things worse by my own naivete and ignorance. And so I really appreciate that breakdown being very concise and helpful. 
Reagan, if being actually a larger size body is not the thing that's causing the health problems, you hit on basically three things that that are causing the health problems that we see sometimes in larger size people. And so one of the ones you already kind of hit on and that I want to go back to for a second is we just make the assumption that if somebody is a larger size body, they just need to lose weight and to lose weight, they just need to make better choices. Like they clearly are just eating potato chips all day and sneaking dessert while we're not looking. And um, so, you know, I'm going to counsel you that you should make better choices. And if you just made better choices, you would be less weight, but you already mentioned that it's impossible to lose weight. So maybe like connect those dots for us. Yeah. So there's been this prevalent belief that it's just about if you eat less and exercise more or make better choices, you'll lose weight. And it's just as simple as calories in calories out. And that's all there is. And that again, I can, and it's hard to talk about this without starting to sound like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist, because Mm -hmm. it is in many ways, an actual conspiracy that is diet industry language. Weight watchers, when they filed their original corporate charter knew that they were a repeat business model. It's in their original documents. Mm-hmm. So they were aware that when people attempt to lose weight by restriction through either food or movement, uh, what happens is the first part of the biological response is they lose weight short term while their body adjusts to the situation. But the second part of the same biological response is that the body changes physiologically to become essentially a weight maintaining weight regaining machine. Mm-hmm. And what the diet industry has done brilliantly is to take credit for the first part of the biological response. And then get us to blame ourselves and to blame other people for the second part of that same biological response. And then to get that essentially with into medical education and healthcare. So it's sort of codified as like, this is the quote unquote truth. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see some acknowledgement though, basically in the service of selling more expensive, more dangerous weight loss interventions that this hasn't worked. But starting with Stunkert et al. in 1959, which actually looked at the previous 30 years of data, so data from the 1920s, what we've seen is that, again, intentional weight loss fails about 95% of the time. And up to 66% of the time, people are regaining more than they lost. And so um, it's it's not the fault. I mean, I talked to a lot of healthcare providers, and they honestly believe that their advice is helpful. And some of the things I point out is how many of us who are fat have been told to eat less and exercise more by someone who had no idea how much we ate or how much we exercised. Yeah. Um, Studies have been done that have shown that however well-intentioned doctors, weight loss advice is typically horrible. Yeah. One of my favorite was uh, instead of a Mars bar, reach for a banana. And I would bet, like, first of all, that's oddly specific. And I would bet all the money in my pockets that that doctor didn't know if the patient ate Mars bars or was allergic to bananas. Right. Right. And it's not the fault of healthcare practitioners. I also speak in medical schools. I'm very well aware that there's not a lot of education. When you look at the education a registered dietitian has to have in order to give this kind of advice, and then you look at the education that uh, doctors and other healthcare professionals are getting, but then told that they're responsible for giving this advice. It's a terrible system and it's just re-encoding really bad advice. Um, and based on the back of that diet industry belief that if people aren't successful, it's because they didn't do it right. Yeah. And not only are we responsible for that conversation that we are ill-equipped to have, we are also, there's also financial incentives to have it and to document that you've had it. And there's financial incentive incentives to take someone's weight because it's a real easy way to document what, you know, CMS thinks is a worthwhile piece of information. And I need to aggregate enough of those pieces of information in my documentation or else I don't get paid. And that's problematic 
you know, I, and I know, you know, Reagan, you and me and Jeremy have kind of touched on this before offline, but like, not that we're all trying to, to sympathize with the doctors here, but, you know, if we're part of the problem, how can we be part of the solution if the system is um, de-incentivizing us from leaving fat people alone? I don't know your thoughts on that. Well, and educating us incorrectly. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge miseducation that happens and then that's passed on to patients. And then, as you said, it's encoded in the system. So there's a lot of systemic change that needs to be made uh, around this. And, you know, from everything from uh, incentivizing doctors to have these weight loss conversations that have no proof of efficacy Mm -hmm. to incentivizing doctors to deny care to people at higher BMI so that they don't have higher complication rates. Um, to, you know, having tools available for all doctors to creating, you know, is there, it's the simplest things. Is there, are there blood pressure cuffs that fit people of all sizes at every blood pressure station? Or is there like maybe one and you have to scramble for it while the patient gets more and more stressed right before you take their blood pressure, (laughs) right? After you just did the weigh-in that stressed them out before you take their blood pressure, you know, or they're using a too small cuff. So there's like all of these things that have to change systemically to, to be at a place where we're like, we value higher weight people and we want to support their health and the bodies that they have. And as long as we're obsessed with making those people thin first, then we're not prioritizing actually supporting their health. Yeah. I want you to go back and talk about uh, weight cycling in a second, um, because that's kind of where we were headed with that last conversation. But what you just said before was a really nice example of the inaccessibility of healthcare and anybody who's listening to this podcast who has had a doctor's appointment the next day, no matter what it was for, has had some anxiety about that doctor's appointment, meaning like, what am I going to say to the doctor? Or what are they going to tell me what's going to happen? And what you just explained was a situation where somebody who has a larger body then is going to be told that they need to lose weight or they need to like stay away from a Mars bar and they have a banana. And that experience is not going to encourage that person to continue to be a part of the healthcare system. It is going to make them terrified to come back, at least from my own personal perception. So maybe you can comment from either your own anecdotal experience or what you, you're an advocate for many people, kind of like how that discourages fat people, people of larger size from accessing medical care. Oh yeah. And there's good research on it that experiencing weight stigma, weight shaming at the doctor or healthcare provider's office creates disengagement from care. And that can be both medical care and self-care. If you tell someone enough that their body is proof that they're bad, they will start to believe that and internalize that and believe that their body is not worthy of care. Or if you go enough times to the doctor with an actual problem and they hijack the appointment to talk about weight loss, and it's happened to me for a separated shoulder, a broken toe and strep throat just three quick examples, right? Right. Then like, what is the point of going? And so people wait until things are really bad. And then what we hear is, oh, fat people present with much worse cases than thin people. But it's because either they've delayed care because they have, you know, it's been proven to them that they won't get good care or they went. And instead of getting the same ethical evidence-based treatment, a thin person with the same symptoms would get, they got a diet. And so they left and tried to lose weight and which was never going to work. And then their, you know, condition was exacerbated when they came back in. And then that gets tagged as the fault of their body size. So it keeps coming back to that cycle. Um, But yeah, it's, you know, incredibly difficult. And I teach classes on navigating weight stigma at the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, the first thing I say is we shouldn't have to be here. Like you shouldn't have to take a class. 
to go to the doctor. You shouldn't have to like gear up and get skills and practice to get basic healthcare. But that's the situation that a lot of higher weight people find themselves in that they have to have tricks and tips to figure out how to circumvent this weight conversation so that they can talk about their sprained wrist. Yeah. Yeah. In a society where we're trying to treat everybody equally, meaning if everybody walked through the door, if, if, if a hundred separated shoulders walk through the door, I should be providing the same counseling and treatment to every hundred separated shoulders, you know, presuming that they're all the same separated shoulder, but we don't. And that is affected by body size in this situation, but it can be affected by gender. It can be affected by race. It can be affected by a lot of other factors. Um, and so this is just another example of, of, of that situation. Yeah. And one of the things about weight stigma is that it's striated. So I'm going to have a better experience than people who weigh more than me, but a worse experience than people who weigh less. So this is always going to do the most harm to the people at the highest weights and also people with multiple multiple marginalized identities, right? So when someone is black and trans and fat and they go to the doctor, there's all of these different ways in which um, intersectional bias is going to create problems for them in getting care. Yeah. Jeremy, you said before that, you know, the person that is experiencing this type of bias at the doctor's office when they're already probably antsy and nervous just because they're worried about their health condition. They're like, well, my toe hurts. I have to go to see the toe person. And then they're offered not helpful care. Um, You use the word that that would be terrifying. Uh, I think it would be. I also think that I would be fucking angry is what I would be. But that's also coming from a place of privilege of like, I don't know, most of the time people don't treat me like shit when I go to the doctor's office because I have a, um, a a layer of empowerment all over me that is is very apparent when I'm when they walk in the room and I'm sitting on the table that other people don't get to have. Um, and I think part of that, and I love that you've brought up a few times, Reagan, about Anti-fatness is also very well tied in to white supremacy and anti-blackness and probably some degree of misogyny. You know, a lot of other other or anti-able, you know, or yeah, ableist kind of thinking is that this is the situation where we still that a lot of people still feel very justified in engaging in discriminatory behavior based on how someone's body looks. And like, how is that okay? What? Like, tell. tell me I'm wrong here, you know? And, and that's the way that I presented to people being like, look, you wouldn't, you wouldn't treat a person like this if they had lupus, you know, it's just that you can't, people can't hide what their body looks like. And so we immediately just get to judge them about it. And I just, it's, it's just not sustainable. Well, society assumes that, that, that people are larger bodies made that make bad choices. That's yeah. the assumption, right? You, you didn't choose to have lupus, but you choose to have chose to have a bigger body, which is what we're trying to break down here. Right. And um, I can see that bigger body with my eyeballs. You know, like I can see it as soon as I walk in the room with you. You can't hide that from me. I can see it. It's evidenced. I have evidence in my face that I can see that. So I've got to be right. Yeah. Because I, you know, yeah. it's crazy. <clears throat> well, and it's, there's, I mean, you can't ever directly compare oppressions because they come from different places. They privilege and oppress differently, but I'm both queer and fat. And I came out in Texas in the mid nineties. And I, when I started to do fat activism work, I started to see parallels where I was told like being queer is a choice. It's a Mm. choice that's bad for your physical and mental health and bad Mm. for society. And you should choose to be straight. And if you don't enjoy homophobia, then change yourself. Mm -hmm. 
And so as a fat person, I see that as well, that the idea, like regardless of what you believe about weight and health, the idea that the cure of to weight stigma is that fat people should change themselves to suit their oppressors is dead wrong. Yeah. Always. And so there's a different kind of oppression that people who are perceived to be able to change and move out of the oppressed class experience. It's not better or worse. It's just a different type of oppression. And for fat people, there's the belief that you could lose weight if you wanted to. And so again, if then if inequality is due to fatness, then inequality is acceptable. Yeah. It's perfectly Let, said. Let's talk about weight cycling. Cause I think one of the things that um, as a provider or anybody who has told somebody to lose weight, we don't think about is the consequences of what we just did, maybe in the long term. And we do that for everything else. I told people today multiple times about something they came in with the long term consequences of, you know, not having physical therapy or or not treating what they were doing because I I quoted data. But I just told someone to lose weight, and I don't think we tell them a that's impossible with data that you already just told us. In addition to that, you're going to gain the weight back. And what's the long-term consequences of kind of going up and down or yo-yo waiting? Yeah, that's super important. And a a comparison that often gets made that bugs me is that it's like trying to quit smoking. People say it's really hard to quit smoking, but, you know, it's worth trying. And the difference, there's several differences here. First of all, smoking is a single behavior. Every smoker smokes. Whereas, again, obesity is a ratio of weight and height with no shared symptomology among the population. Beyond which... A smoker is healthier for every cigarette they don't smoke. Mm -hmm. So trying to quit actually has health benefits, even if the person goes back to smoking. Trying to lose weight is not the same thing. Failure is not benign. So when somebody loses weight and gains it back, that's known as weight cycling. Weight cycling is associated with almost every health condition to which being higher weight is associated, as well as overall higher rates of CVD, higher rates of all-cause mortality, higher rates of inflammation, which is how where a lot of the correlation stems from. And so again, when we tell people to try to lose weight, what we're telling them is something that has about a 95% chance of having an outcome that is known to be linked to harm. So it's not just that it's not likely to work because one thing um, doctors often say to me is, oh, well, yeah, no, it fails 95% of the time, but you just have to keep trying to get into the 5%. (laughs) That's the lottery thinking right there. Yeah. I feel like Julie and I had this conversation (laughs) with somebody recently and they said that exact thing. Yeah. You didn't try hard enough for long enough. And it's like, yeah, that then buy, buy a hundred thousand more lottery tickets. You Ding dong. Probably not going to happen. Well, and like, look, not everybody st- took statistics and that's fine, but I did. So <laughs> let me explain that that is not how that works. Right. And again, failing is not benign. And some people think, oh, well, that just means if you try, you know, 95 times the 96th is going to work. Like there's a lot of misunderstanding of statistics. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so that it's really important to understand that what you're doing, if somebody fails, which they have a, a 95% chance of doing, that's not benign. And around that, at the very least, there's a requirement for informed consent, Mm -hmm. right? If you think of it, I don't, again, I don't believe body size is a health condition, but if we're going to treat it that way, then we have to treat it that way. So if you had a pill and it was like, okay, 5% of the time your health condition gets better, 95% of the time it gets better at first and then comes all the way back and up to 66% of the time it gets worse. You have to tell people that you're not allowed to say everyone who tries hard enough to take this pill cures their condition, right? That's not how that works. And so even if people believe that being higher weight is a health condition, there's still an obligation for ed- ethical evidence-based medicine and informed consent that is never being met as far as I've heard yeah. around higher weight patients. Agreed. Reagan, are there any situations that you can think of in which 
somebody should be told to lose weight like this is something that's boggled my mind for a while and i want to just ask you <laughs> so the weight neutral health paradigm acknowledges that there are people of all sizes who have health problems right people of all sizes are all over the health spectrum mm -hmm. and health issues should be blame free shame free and future oriented in their treatment right there's no point in blaming or shaming someone for how they got to where they are that's just going to create disengagement from care and shame and all kinds of negative things also understanding health is not an obligation it's not a barometer of worthiness. It's far from being entirely within our control. And it's a really gooey, amorphous concept. And we have, and I, you know, I came from this background. So I understand wanting to have a definition of health that we put people in or out of that, like mm -hmm. you can throw a dart and hit or win a trophy and hold up. And in fact, when we start talking on an individual level, it's so amorphous and gooey. It's different for somebody who was born with the chronic condition versus someone who develops it later in life versus someone who has no chronic health conditions versus someone who has six chronic health conditions. And so understanding all of that is the background, that when we're talking about individual behaviors, health supporting behaviors have more benefits and far less risk than recommending weight loss attempts. And that's whether we're talking about behavioral pharmacotherapy or surgical attempts. And so I don't think that weight loss is an ethical evidence-based medical recommendation. I simply Understood. don't think it meets the qualifications. I think that your logic is extremely sound and I'm very open to people making the counter argument to you. I'm sure people have tried many, many times, but uh, I sure don't see a situation where that would prove very fr fruitful for them. And, uh, and I love the way that you broke it down for us. Um, so thanks. I love the health at every size principles in which you've helped contribute to. So can you maybe touch on those a little bit? Cause I think that that's a resource that isn't maybe not widely known of. Sure. So Health at Every Size, or Hayes, H-A-E-S, is the trademark brand of the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health, ASDA, or A-S-D-A-H.org. And they, they are the keepers of the, the principles of Health at Every Size. Um, but in general, Weight Neutral Health says that a focus on health-supporting behaviors, um, which includes, and in our culture, we get just myopically focused on food and exercise, mm. right? But we're talking about adequate sleep. We're talking about social connection, which has been shown to have uh, more links to health than smoking and or high blood pressure mm -hmm. and is almost never discussed, right? We're talking about stress management. And we're also talking about access to the foods that somebody wants to eat and any movement options that they might want to participate in. Um, and I, one thing I will say, a pet peeve of mine about weight neutral health cultures, we sometimes get really focused on the concept of quote unquote, enjoyable movement. And for a lot of people, that's too high a threshold. I talked to a lot of people who had messy breakups with exercise, <laughs> right? Because of the dodgeball, the president's physical fitness test, their, you know, the yeah. fat shaming experience, et cetera. And so for some people, physical movement is a way that they manage a chronic condition or manage their stress, or they do it for whatever benefits that they get, but they think of it as like laundry or dishes. Mm. And so I just want to give a minute to plug that, that like is enjoyable movement is not a bad thing. If someone is moving for the joy of it, or that's why they want to move, that's excellent. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But it's also a completely valid relationship with movement. Something I tell people is, you know, how, okay, so after a meal, if you do five minutes of movement, it helps you avoid a blood sugar spike with your T2D. And they say, yes. And I say, okay, like how much do you have to do? And they're like, well, five minutes. And I'm like, all right, pick a thing that you hate the least and do it for five minutes. And that's fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Done. Move on.
that's a, a valid relationship with movement and a valid way to use movement. But we get so like caught up mm -hmm. in these 150 minutes of movement a week or 75 minutes vigorous or some combination, which is like some calculus that people aren't going to do. Yeah. And, you know, it. I think, and again, even within weight neutral health community, we get tied up on that. But so those are the basic principles that we're focusing on health supporting behaviors for people of all sizes, rather than trying to manipulate body size as a path to health. That's great. Awesome. I know it's changed um, <clears throat> our interactions with you, our interactions with uh, already mentioned, you know, maintenance phase with Aub uh, Aubrey Gordon. And then in addition to being able to look at some of these resources has changed the way I practice. Um, I know that the way that I speak to patients at this point is basically saying, you know, I think you need to move, you know, like you need to exercise, you need to be eating healthy, whatever that looks like. And I'm not a nutritionist, but you should be trying to eat nutritious foods. You should be finding connection and being happy and socializing. Um, and you should not be smoking. And if you can do all four of those things, I don't really care what the scale shows. Um, and that's what I've told people because I know that it helps them. Um, like those things help people. And then the other thing I've told them is I actually think the scale gets in the way. I think, you know, you exercise and you're like, I'm going to see how I'm doing. So I'm going to go get on that thing that gives me some arbitrary number. And I don't like what it says. So I hate what everything I just did leading up to it. And I'm never going to yeah. do it again. When in reality, everything you did was, was making you healthier. So that has been my vernacular. And I, 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 it's going to evolve and I'm hopefully going to keep getting better at it, but that's, it, it, that's a short term. I mean, I did not say that six months ago. So I, yeah. I, I, I love this information that I'm garnering. Has it changed your practice at all, Julie? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I think it's like, here's, here's a couple of old dogs. You know, we're not the oldest dogs, but we're not little pups that are learning some new tricks. And uh, I think if me and Jeremy can do it, you, everybody else can do it too. And especially if we are listening to experts like Reagan um, and leading into that, Reagan, where can people find you? How can they you know, learn from you and what resources are out there that you would recommend if people want to learn more about what we just talked about today? Sure. So for me, my uh, newsletter is weightandhealthcare.com. Mm -hmm. I just talk about there the intersections of weight science, weight stigma, and healthcare practice. Um, the Hayes Health Sheets, H-A-E-S, which again stands for health at every size. Um, those are hayeshealthsheets.com. And basically they're diagnosis specific weight neutral care guides for patients, practitioners, and advocates. And I co-write those with Dr. Louise Metz and Dr. Asher Laramie, and then Tiana Dodson um, reviews them and is also our web person. And so that also has a resource and research bank. So resources for navigating weight stigma, and then a research bank. If you're a giant nerd like me and want to dig into it, you can start there. Um, my speaking site is sizedforsuccess.com. And then other resources, I, again, I really recommend, um, Deshaun Harrison's Belly of the Beast, Sabrina Strings, Fearing the Black Body. Shelby Gordon, who's on Instagram as Fit Flexible Fluid, has a resource uh, bank of articles and other resources around how diet culture is specifically racist. And those are excellent. You mentioned maintenance phase, also great. Um, so yeah, those are some places to start. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. And I just learned some more. I'm going to read. If you get nothing else out of this episode, subscribe to Reagan's uh, uh, substack. email substack uh, mm -hmm. from her weight and healthcare because it is so informative. So good. She recently had one on imaging, like x-rays, MRIs, CT scans that we shared with our departments because mm -hmm. it's just something that you just wouldn't yeah. think of. Think about. Very well and, received also. Extremely yeah. well received of like, thank you for sending this to us. 
I love it. I mean, just bolstered my happiness with where we work. So that that's great. Yay. Oh, that makes me so happy. Reagan, what what have we not told our listeners? I'm, we're going to have about seventeen more episodes on this, but what, what, <laughs> what, like like what is what is something that you wanted to make sure everybody heard that we didn't? And the answer can be nothing. But if there's something, I want to make sure we get it out there. So, no matter what you believe about weight and health, fat people have the right to exist without shame, stigma, bullying, or oppression. It doesn't matter why they're fat. It doesn't matter if there are health impacts of being fat. It doesn't matter if they could or want to become thin. Fat people have the right to access and accommodation, including in healthcare, period. The rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness should never be size or health dependent. Hmm. It's hard to do a hard to do a closing line after that, Julie. I'm just stealing. I'm just stealing stuff that Reagan has already said and cobbling it together in my in my COVID addled brain right now. Um, all right, all right cor- uh, quarantine isolated, Julie, close us out. <laughs> Here's my quarantini. Um, you know, let's all look through the telescope together and be blame free, shame free, and future oriented. Listen to your doctor friends. <laughs> The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guests to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Oh, wait, I'm the one that, that stops recording. You have to stop the recording, Julie.